Good evening and welcome to 62 Who Knew live tonight on WeBeam TV from my hometown in Baltimore, Maryland. My name is Stephen Sless in tonight for my good friend Michael Banner. If you're returning, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here. We have a big show planned, so sit back and relax for the fastest hour on the internet. First, as tradition on this show, a brief synopsis of 62 Who Knew. 62 Who Knew is a show dedicated to serving the baby boomer audience, their loved ones, and trusted advisors. Viewers of 62 Who Knew tune in to become educated and empowered on topics such as long-term care planning, retirement income strategies, reverse mortgages, Medicare, and a wide array of other topics designed to put you in the driver's seat to maintain or better your lifestyle. Today, those nearing retirement or those already retired face one challenge that their grandparents and parents didn't. As Michael always says, it is the double-edged sword of longer lifespans. Sure, people are living longer, and that's a great thing. But with longer lifespans also comes the need to make your nest egg last longer as well. Week after week, this show delivers on its promise to serve as the premier source for all the things those 62 plus should and need to know. Loyal, loyal viewers no longer ask who knew. Instead, they are better prepared to tackle retirement head on. Tonight's topic is one yet to be covered on 62 Who Knew. We're going to talk about easing the financial difficulties of divorce. Divorce among baby boomers, commonly known as silver or gray divorce, is on the rise. For those facing gray divorce at this stage in life, the risks and stakes are high. Couples coming out of long-term marriages face challenges that most younger divorcees don't. How to divide real estate assets, retirement accounts, and other wealth is a delicate and sometimes arduous process. Tonight, we have two amazing guests to help you, a loved one, or your client to better navigate divorce. First, welcome Jamie Hopkins, retirement researcher and managing director with the Carson Group. Also joining us is Nancy Hedrick founder and CEO of Smart Divorce Solutions. Nancy is also a certified divorce financial analyst. Welcome, Jamie and Nancy. Thank you so much for being on tonight. Thank you so much for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, it's thanks, a pleasure. Stephen, Thank thanks, you. Nancy. Nancy, let's start it off with you. Tell me, tell me a little bit about Smart Divorce Solutions and, and what makes you so passionate about what you do. Why did you found the organization? Yeah, well, first it's smarter divorce solutions because it is actually we're trying to pioneer and be the disruptors in this in this area and really offer couples a better alternative than going to war and wasting tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on a litigation process. And as so many of these things go, it was born out of my own divorce experience. Uh, I went through a, a less than optimal divorce in 2007 and fancied myself a very savvy financial advisor. So surely we could just do this on our own. You know, we were mature people and we wanted to be civil and work this out. So in Arizona, they actually make it fairly easy to do a do-it-yourself divorce. Well, 
was in 2007, as the real estate market was collapsing. We had a primary home and two rentals. The agreement was that he would keep the primary home and we would each take a rental with the agreement that we would both refinance by the end of the year. I did, he did not, and proceeded to let both of the properties go into foreclosure with my name on them. And there was nothing I could do about it because we hadn't structured it properly in the first place. So I really, I learned about this credential that I have, a certified divorce financial analyst, and I just became passionate about helping people avoid the mistakes that I had made and really giving people the resources that they want to do divorce in a different way. Um, we say we like to have a kinder, gentler, much more affordable divorce. And in Arizona, it's actually a 100% out-of-court solution. Most of our couples, no attorneys, no judges, no courtrooms. We help them negotiate a, a financially creative settlement where we look forward into the future, make sure they're both going to be okay when it's all said and done. And we have a legal document preparer on staff that does all their, the legal documents required. We file it with the court and in Arizona, you don't even have to have a hearing. So it really is a better way to do things for couples that are able to work together to a certain, at enough of a rate to reach an agreement that they can both be comfortable with. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, Nancy and I met on a, uh, on a Zoom call not too long ago, just last week, uh, the SLES Group, my organization, we, uh, we have a partnership with the Institute for Divorce Financial Analysts. And uh, Nancy and, and other certified divorce financial analysts were on the call. And I was just blown away just by, by your enthusiasm about this, your passion. Uh, you know, divorce can be a touchy subject. And, and I was just blown away. And I had to have you on the show tonight. Before we dive in, Jamie, let's throw it over to you. Uh, somebody that I've uh, known and respected and revered as, as a reverse mortgage professional. You're, you're an individual that's changed the conversation of reverse mortgages. Uh, you and another small group by your research and your, your studies and your white papers. Tell us a little bit about the Carson Group and your role uh, with the Carson Group. Yeah, well, uh, thanks. Uh, and Nancy, great introduction there, too. I loved it. And uh, Stephen, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I, I kind of uh, sit in two roles, and I have for a long time. I, I sit in the academia world, so the kind of professor world, and I'm a professor at Creighton University, Hyder College of Business, which I, I still love near and dear. And the other side is the, the practitioner side, uh, working with Carson Group, which is a national RIA firm. So we do financial planning and wealth management for clients all across the country, and uh, very proud of what we're able to deliver. And we look at that planning first mindset, which is you brought up like, you know, does a particular strategy fit into planning? I mean, the short answer is usually right. Like there, there's some place for it out there and it's figuring out instead of, uh, it, you know, you know, demifying things and, and making things good or bad on their face to kind of understand and go a little bit deeper. So one of the areas that I did that for a while was in the reverse mortgage and just broader retirement housing conversation, which brought me to a, a group of academics that were doing some research in this space. We, we ended up taking that group over to University of Illinois, which is now an academy there uh, that focuses on retirement and housing wealth. And then I try to take all that research and put it into practice for our 
clients. So I head up our retirement division at Carson. And then I also uh, help with our coaching company. So we coach about 1,400 advisory firms out there, too, that are then working with all of their clients to, to get better and just deliver more secure futures. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate, appreciate both of you being on. Nancy, let's, let's bring the divorce element back, back up. How, how common is silver or gray divorce, uh, divorce for baby boomers? How common of it, how common is it? What are you seeing and why is it happening? Yeah, and this is really interesting because for a long, long time, we didn't know because nobody had really done the research to find the numbers. And finally, in 2020, a study was released, and they looked at all the divorce statistics between 1990 and 2010, I believe. And we discovered that the divorce rate for those over age 50 had doubled in that time frame. And it was quite a shock to everyone. We really had no idea that was happening. And so there's been a lot of study and a lot of research done on this as well as a lot of education of financial planners to help people cope with this. We're living a lot longer. And leave it to the baby boomers, the the first real generation of individualists that even going into retirement, they're going to do it their own way. And this is not this is not the generation of our parents that will just kind of sit it out and rock away life together. I cannot tell you that I would estimate 70% of the divorces that we help people with are people over age 50 and typically in very long-term marriages. People are, and what's interesting to me is I work with a lot of people that are in their 70s and they'll be still caring for parents in their 90s. And I think that when you're sitting at age 70 today and you're looking at a 30-year future, if you're not with the partner that really lights you up every day, you're probably going to want to make some changes. Remember, too, that this is the generation of women that were the first ones to enter the workforce. So they likely got married in an age when divorcing was not something that was even on the table, right? And you were pretty much 100% dependent on a provider spouse. Come along the last 20, 30 years and Women are not only now making their own money, but in a lot of cases, making more money and becoming the primary breadwinners. And with that becomes freedom of choice. Uh, Because I got to tell you that anecdotally, nine times out of 10, the women are the initiators. Nancy, can you speak to some of the fears that you hear? I mean, you're you're talking to couples and divorcees every day. What are some of the fears uh, that older divorcees have that other divorce that younger divorcees don't share right well you know certainly for younger people planning for retirement they know they still have time they have time to recover so when you're 60 or 62 years old getting a divorce you had a retirement plan that was based on the expenses of one household and that's now been blown out of the water and now we have to plan for two households and then dramatically changed standard of living and so they're both coming to the table with a tremendous amount of fear and trepidation of you know just how much of a drop in their standard of living are they going to have to take um i had a couple i worked with once just the cutest couple in their early 70s best friends they'd been married for 27 years and it was actually a second marriage it was a late life marriage and 
they, they came to me and they said, listen, we know that we would be better people if we could live apart. But if we can't afford to do it, we're not going to do it. We're going to just keep doing what we're doing. So just know that. And, you know, if we can't do it, it's okay. <laughs> and it was just so fun. And, Stephen, you'll appreciate this. The solution for them was a reverse mortgage. We were able to sell their $200,000 home, have each of them do a reverse purchase on a new $200,000 property, and, and still maintain their standard of living. And they were just tickled pink. And they had never had any idea that something like that would be possible. It's amazing. I mean, we, we see it every day, how, how impactful a reverse mortgage can be, particularly in silver or gray divorce with the, the division of assets. Uh, and I think what a reverse mortgage does best is it, is it enables both couples to part ways amicably without one holding the short end of the stick. Jamie, you're, you've, like I said at the beginning of the show, you've been one of the, the top minds when it comes to the integration of housing wealth into a comprehensive financial strategy. Can you expand on that a little bit? Uh, let's start with reverse mortgages, because Nancy brought it up. I wasn't going to go there first as the reverse mortgage guy, but I love that we're heading in that direction. And I love that Nancy uses it, a reverse mortgage, as a financial tool for her and her clients. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the strategies, not just reverse mortgages in particular, but, but how the division of housing wealth and how uh, that housing wealth can be divided in an amicable divorce. Yeah, and I'll piggyback off a lot of what Nancy already said because I think you framed it up perfectly, which is, um, you know, the house and real estate can be difficult assets to split up, right? Because normally, what does it require? And, you know, Nancy will probably hop in on this again later, right? Normally, if you're getting divorced later in life, you own a house. We've got to divide it in some shape or form. And that creates a whole lot of challenges, especially if you start looking at the data around, you know, U.S. households. You go back, we're going to get new data on this here in the next couple of years, but you go back to the last U.S. census, right? The median 65-year-old couple, most of their wealth in the United States is in their home. It's about two-thirds of their wealth. So all of a sudden, a divorce means that's our one of our primary assets, right? Maybe our 401k, IRA. Dollars are easier to split up. The home would typically require a sale. So one strategy is just that, right? That people would sell the home, and then they might both go rent or they might just go both try to buy and they you, know, you now have two <laughs> new mortgages outstanding with cash flow uh, you know needs out there and expenses then just went up and that whole question of can I afford the future in retirement that I want becomes a little bit more challenging so we've seen situations, a perfect one that Nancy described, where you sell the house, you take the cash out, you go do a heckum for purchase, you then buy two houses, no monthly mandatory mortgage payments. Some people might pay interest monthly, and you you're, might be living in the same you know size house you were before with no cash outflow each and every month. Now, right, there's a cost associated with that, but you're kind of moving it down the road. Um, another one is, and we've seen this with divorces too, where you say, well, we want to split up the house. The house is paid off. We're 65, 70 years old. And normally, how do I pay it off? I've got two options, right? We sell and I've got to go pay out the spouse. Maybe we have enough assets elsewhere. But again, if it's two thirds of the total value of your assets, we can't do an easy split. So do you refinance, you pull some money out of the house? That's a possibility. Again, 
What happens to cash flow at that point? Can we meet these uh, payments monthly? Or we've actually seen where, right, we change title and we pay out through a reverse mortgage so that person gets to keep living in the house if that's what they want it. Um, not always the case, but sometimes it is, and that can be a valuable strategy too. So I think whenever it comes to housing, again, as I said at the early part, you know, it is individual specific. It is couple specific. It is what is their needs? What are they trying to accomplish here? And then we have to be open to looking at the different strategies that are out there. And that's always my message is like, keep an open mind about strategies. What is best for your situation <laughs> might not be the same everywhere. Um, you know, we see that with planning. We see it with divorces. We see it with couples being in retirement that all different types of people can have different goals that they're trying to hit. And then we work back from those goals to the, per to you know, the best, I shouldn't say perfect, uh, but the best kind of planning that we can get in front of you. It's fantastic. I do have, Jamie, I want you to expand on one thing. Talk to me about how housing wealth can mitigate sequence of return risk. Because, uh, uh. <laughs> you know, sequence of return risk, I think, is heightened at this stage in life. And, you know, I'm thinking about, divorcees retiring in their late 60s, 70s, even 80s, maybe, uh, they, they don't have that room to make mistakes. Uh, and I think housing wealth is a great way to mitigate sequence of return risk. But I'm a little biased. I'm the reverse mortgage guy here. So talk to me uh, a little bit more broadly about how the integration of housing wealth and, and more specifically using all of your retirement assets comprehensively can help prevent sequence of return risk. Yeah, so sequence of returns risk. Uh, that might be the financial advisor uh, world's favorite term for the last decade. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so what is that? Uh, kind of where did, how did we get to this place? And so the, this is a, a little bit of a changing dynamic, also, right? That, you know, we're about to see the largest test case, uh, you know, with real people that we've ever seen around retirement, which is, you know, this slow move away from the pension system to this system of 401ks and IRAs saving for yourself. And we're, we're going to see all these people try to move through retirement with less secure income from things like a pension. Even the percent that Social Security is probably replacing of your spending needs has gone down as the system hasn't been fully updated. Um, and so all of a sudden, we, we've got to manage our own investments, manage our own distributions from our savings and our retirement uh you know funds in you know throughout our life that creates a really big challenge and the challenge then is retirement income how can we make this sustainable throughout an uncertain period of time the other challenge that is there is what you mentioned market risk if we're going to be invested we're going to have sequencing risk and sequencing risk is in simplest terms if we get really bad market years in the first three to five years of retirement, or even you can argue the first three to five years heading into retirement, there's this time frame right around when we retire. And that actually presents the biggest risk to portfolio sustainability uh, possible. Really bad returns at the end of retirement is actually not as big of a deal 
The reason is because we're drawing down the assets. And if we're drawing down the assets and I've got to take $50,000 out, I want to take $50,000 out right after a good year, not after a bad year. So I, if I have to take these fixed draws early in retirement, it causes depletion of the portfolio faster than we might like it. So over the last decade or so, there's been a lot of research into income planning. What are ways that we can make these you know, portfolios last? We can make your retirement income sustainable. So what are all the different strategies? Doing planning about just a smart way to split up assets if you're going through a divorce. Things like Social Security claiming strategies, tax efficiency planning, right? We mentioned a little bit about Medicare or Medicaid spend down strategies. All of those come into play. But the one that advisors really focus on, and I think a lot of Americans gravitate to, is this, how do we mitigate sequence of returns risk? Well, short answer is I can't change what the market's going to do, right? Like, I have no idea what the market's going to do next year, and nobody could have predicted last year either, right? Like, when anyone says they can predict, you just give them 2020, and there's zero chance anyone had that pegged. And, right, we're going to get bad years in the market at some point. Okay, it's going to happen. We just don't know when. So can you create flexibility in your planning to pull from other assets during that time period? So what do a lot of people do? They hold cash. Well, honestly, I'm not a big fan of holding too much cash because eventually what you're doing is you're dragging down your total returns. If you hold two years of cash for 30 years, you have reduced your total return possibility of that portfolio to the point where actually it might have not helped offset sequence of returns because the drag on your returns is now more than the benefit you got from the being able to use the cash during the down years. So we have to balance these things, right? We can't just go all cash. We can't go all anything usually. So then you start thinking about, well, what assets do we have when we get to retirement? Right. One of them is your house. A lot of people have housing wealth. So the research developed around this, which is set up a line of credit, reverse mortgage, or you could use other home equity solutions, too, if they're going to last through the market downturn periods. And you actually take draws. So you take borrow right from your house through reverse mortgage after down market years instead of pulling money out of the market. And essentially what that does is it just allows your assets to right, quote unquote, recover, you know, we're not trying to aim at a certain measurement to get back up to. It was very simple research on that side, um, which is market goes down, draw from your house. And that's actually been shown to improve portfolio sustainability. Now, there's other strategies like that, right? Bond ladders, CD ladders, early in retirement, they are forms of bucketing. There's arguments around those. Or you could have cash value life insurance, pull from that, um, borrow from that during the early years to offset down market years so you don't deplete your portfolio too fast. All of those have to come back to what are you trying to accomplish? What's your risk? What's the cost associated with these? But there are strategies using housing wealth and using reverse mortgages that can help, right, improve the sustainability of retirement income plans. And that's where this whole sequencing conversation, we get back to that, uh, which is what you asked. So I, well, I know I talked for a while there, so it's always good for me to take a pause. <laughs> Hey, if we if we stop the show right there, the, the past ten minutes has been absolute gold. Uh, and and for a for somebody that's passionate about reverse mortgages and and using housing wealth, I mean, I'm just here soaking it up. Let's try to pivot a little bit. Sixty two Who Knew has a initiative since day one on this show to discuss and educate and promote long term care insurance. Uh, Nancy, let's let's throw this one back to you. 
clients who have long-term care insurance, if they have a joint policy, if they have individual policies, how are you helping them to navigate that? And how important is having long-term care insurance, particularly, particularly if the plan is for one spouse to take care of the other? Right, right. Well, that's a great question. And as with so many things in the world of divorce, the answer is almost always it depends. <laughs> so we look at their situation, right? And often, if we have a joint long-term care policy, we really have to look at all the riders and all of the different terms of that insurance policy. Can it be continued to be maintained by the two of them? Sometimes that's possible. Um, if it can be separated into two different policies, I can almost guarantee it's going to cost more money. And so part of what we do when we're working with clients going through divorce is really bring in all the best of financial planning. And what we may find, you know, maybe one of them is going to have an inheritance where the other one is not. And maybe there's a need for long-term care because of medical uh, conditions that might have pre-existed for one party, not so much for the other. So we really try to help the couples solve problems. Okay, if we look at it and we say, you know what, I've got a horrible history of Alzheimer's in my family, I really need to make sure that, that I'm going to be prepared for this. And we work with the couples to find the most creative way to do that. And sometimes it might be as simple as agreeing to keep them on as a beneficiary on a, on a retirement plan so that if anything does happen to the, the other spouse, they're going to be taken care of. And so we really work with couples to look at all the different moving pieces that they have to work with and how can we fill in the gaps in their financial plans. I love it. Jamie, anything to add regarding long-term care insurance? Well, I could probably talk for the 10 days on LTCI, but, uh, you know, I think we got a half maybe an hour, it, so the floor is yours. <laughs> you know, I, I guess an important thing to bring up about long-term care insurance planning is also, you know, I, I think a little bit the, the demographics of how people are starting to plan for this is shifting. Um, you know, the, and this is just based off numbers, right? So you don't have to argue whether you agree with it or disagree. Um, but, you know, there was a time period where standalone, right, your traditional LTCI, CI policies were first and foremost. That's what people thought about when they thought about long-term care planning. And, uh, you know, that's changed a little bit, that those standalone policies, yeah, they still exist, but not in the numbers that they did right in the late 90s to early 2000s. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. But we're seeing more and more of, and, and I think Nancy alluded to some of these too, right, that these joint policies, these hybrid policies may be attached to an annuity or more likely a life insurance policy policy with some type of long-term care rider. And that's really from a percent of sales has become the more you know prominent piece, which some of those technically still can be called uh, long-term care insurance. Some of them are technically different types of riders that could be used for long-term care, but aren't under the legal definition long-term care insurance. So uh, you, you do have to understand that. For some people, they might have some long-term care funding options available and haven't even thought about it. And, and Nancy talked about some of those too, but that could be your life insurance policy, that it could have features that you never thought about as long-term care, but are there 
um, you know, housing wealth could come into play at some point, too. And, and so I think that dynamic continues to shift. And I am really, really interested uh, to see how behavior changes after 2020. I wrote an article for Forbes on this, uh, I guess, back in August 2020. And I started to raise this this notion of you know what happens to nursing homes after 2020. That uh, nursing homes didn't have a great perception before. You rarely run into people who are like, "I'm really excited to spend my final years in a nursing home." Right? Like nobody ever comes and tells me that, even if they're like okay with nursing homes um, as part of their plan. But people don't get excited about it now. What happened in 2020? I mean, nursing homes in some areas just didn't fare well. I mean, I know, Stephen, you're not too far from me, and I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania, but the first couple months of, of 2020, nursing homes fared very poorly here, right, from a number of COVID cases. New York's been in the news a ton. And I do believe um, we did actually see some application numbers significantly decline going into nursing homes. So that's an interesting change. Like, are we going to change the way that we want care long term? And in this country, and I think that's an open conversation that uh, is probably going to continue to evolve. And I think that 2020 probably pushed it forward a bit. Certainly has in our industry. I mean, our reverse mortgage volume for us is up 500 percent from this time last year. And I think what COVID has taught the older generations and, and even look, I mean, we're having more conversations today with adult children than ever before because they don't want mom and dad uh, to go into a nursing home. And and that's not a knock on nursing homes. Look, I think there's a there's great long term care facilities. There's great nursing home facilities. But I think if you asked 10 people, I would say eight or nine out of 10 in all likelihood want to age in place so long as they can do so comfortably and if they, and so long as they can afford to do it um, before we leave the topic of long-term care Jamie what are your thoughts of just using because this this topic has been one that's been heavily debated on this show uh, and I know in in our industry it's heavily debated as well the concept of using housing wealth to fund long-term care specifically the insurance policy so I'm talking about using a reverse mortgage line of credit or using a tenure from a reverse mortgage, and allocating those reverse mortgage funds, which are tax-free, sure, they have to be paid back, and payback can be deferred. But talk to me about what your thoughts are about using the reverse mortgage tool specifically to fund the long-term care insurance policy. Yeah, well, I was about to say, we made it about 30 minutes without a real argument on here, so I guess that's good. <laughs> Uh, you know, this this is one um, that 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 is, as you said, is, is a little bit dicier. And um, you know, once you start talking about uh, and this is not reverse mortgage specific, but it, it comes up kind of in the conversation more. But once you start talking about borrowing money, which is a reverse mortgage or a traditional line of credit, personal loan, whatever you want to think about, and then taking borrowed money and turning around and paying insurance premiums on it, that immediately from a regulator standpoint, from an attorney standpoint, I put my, I'm an attorney by trade, a compliance officer standpoint, you've thrown up all the red flags, right? Borrowing is always a red flag to begin with. So everything borrowing is more difficult, right? Everything uh, insurance is a little bit more difficult. Then you put the two together and you've raised all the flags possible. <laughs> 
Um, and, and why? Well, the problem around this historically has been the conflicts. It's very hard to mitigate the conflicts in the advice that, that you're then receiving. So my short answer is before you do any of that, if, you, if you're going down that road, make sure you get a third party that's disinterested to those two transactions, right? The borrowing and the sale of the insurance to kind of sign off and say, hey, this is actually good for you. Because I'm, I'm of the opinion that, yes, I do think there are times you should write borrow to be able to meet certain, certain insurance premiums, long-term care, life insurance, health insurance. There, there are times when that is the right thing to do. But what we have to be just wary of is the incentives on those sides to provide advice. And so we've got to do our best to mitigate that. Um, I would say, generally speaking, most advisors uh, that I know don't get into the recommending of borrowing reverse mortgage to make specific life insurance annuity or long-term care premium payments. With the caveat that instead it's more about cash flow, that we have a broader conversation about what are your total expenses, what are the cash flow you need, are we reducing an expense or increasing cash flow that then allows you to do holistically all of the things that we're talking about. And so in essence, yes, it is incorporating that. Um, and yes, that can be the right thing for you if you know you need to keep that long-term care insurance policy in place. And there is some data. I don't have it off the top of my head, so I'm not going to throw any numbers out here because <laughs> it'll just be made up. But there is a good amount of research that shows a lot of people, right, within a couple years of needing long-term care insurance, let those policies lapse. And so there is clearly like a ton of lost premiums and benefits that went into that. And then a year or two before, right, uh, not being able to make those payments and then losing, right, hundreds of thousands of dollars because you couldn't make a $10,000 payment for the next two years. So when you start thinking on those terms, all of a sudden you're saying, of course, we should have borrowed 10 grand to be able to keep that policy in place for another two years, because as people move later in life, right, it's possible that, you know, things started running out of money. You lost a spouse, you lost Social Security payment, and we can't meet this payment anymore. And that's where the planning you know, really meets the road to make sure that we're doing everything possible to put you in the best place throughout the rest of your life. Yeah, you use the word holistic, and, and it's a word that we use each and every day in our practice. It's, it's a holistic approach to retirement planning. Uh, we see the reverse mortgage used, particularly in silver or gray divorce, to eliminate the payment, the mandatory mortgage payment, for the spouse that's remaining in the marital home to make that home a little bit more affordable, maybe to fund a long-term care insurance policy, maybe to retrofit the home to make the home more conducive for their lifestyle needs as they attempt to age in the comfort of their own home uh, and live out the rest of their golden years. But it's not always borrowing the funds. It's paying off the existing forward mortgage with a you know $1,000, $1,500, $2,000 mortgage payment and reallocating those funds and repurposing those funds to live a more comfortable retirement. Nancy, back over to you. I want to talk about Social Security. Uh, what are the Social Security implications of gray divorce go now <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of them and and especially for folks that are in this category now we often see women who have not been in the workforce for as long or at the level that their husbands were so the husband is qualified for a full social security benefit 
which if you're 67 in about the next 10 years, you know, you're looking at about $24, $25, $2,600 a month. And so the women, their own benefit might only be $500. But as long as they've been married for 10 years, then they qualify for what's called a spousal benefit. And the spousal benefit is half the amount of their spouse, but it doesn't affect the spouse collecting the full benefit. So here's the funniest thing about that. If you're married to someone for 10 years and divorce, they're eligible for a spousal benefit on you. If you marry a second person for 10 years and then divorce, that wife is also eligible to get a spousal benefit. And the Social Security Administration says four ex-spouses can collect a spousal benefit on your payment. Can't imagine why the fund is bankrupt. But <laughs> so, so that's number one is if you're coming up on 10 years, you may want to make sure you're not giving away that spousal benefit. Second, though, is once you have earned that spousal benefit, you've also qualified for the widow's benefit. So interestingly, that same couple that did the reverse purchases in our conversations, I found out she had been married prior to this marriage for more than 10 years, and he had already passed away. And I said, wait a minute, you qualify for a widow's benefit on him. She went to the Social Security Administration the next day and got a $500 increase in her payments that she could have been getting for almost eight years. And the thing about the Social Security Administration is if you don't tell them, they won't tell you. And so you do really want to be versed in that. And, and this, this can often be a problem when we're structuring divorce settlements because Social Security, when it comes to divorce, is not a marital asset. You cannot split a Social Security payment. So if that's their only income coming in and one spouse is going to get twice as much Social Security as the other spouse and they've been married 35 years, how do you think that's going to feel to the lower earning spouse? And then we get into the alimony conversation and, and that goes into a completely different topic. Um, but with Social Security, you really want to make sure you understand those differences. A lot of people are still hanging on to the old ideas about, oh, I can just take my spousal benefit and wait and then take my bigger benefit later. Mm, not so much. They took that away from us a couple years ago. So all those wonderful creative things that financial advisors used to recommend for their clients to maximize Social Security, pretty much everything is gone now. Um, unless you were born in 1954 or earlier, you're not eligible for any of those. So today, when you go apply for Social Security, they're going to look at your own benefit. They're going to look at the benefit that your spouse had earned. They're going to compare the spousal benefit to your own, and whichever one is bigger is the one you're going to get. And you can't start one and pause the other. All of that, that wonderful stuff is gone. So lots of things to keep in mind and to make sure that you get good advice. The scariest thing about this, I've had so many clients call the Social Security Administration and get wrong answers. And so that's, that's a little bit difficult. They got through? They actually got through, yes. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's a got wrong answers. One, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
So well, then we have to show them. I have to pull up the Social Security website, show them the actual the actual rules, and say we're going to call them back together right now, <laughs> and or go in and out. You know, I've gone with with clients through their appointments to just ensure that they get the right information. Things change so fast, and I think the turnover in those jobs is pretty is is pretty short as well. And so there are definitely challenges there. Such a powerful story, in my opinion. How. All of a sudden, you just found this client, you know, what was it, 500 extra dollars a month? Yeah. It, just, it just goes to show you, you, you can't do these things on your own, right? Even if you think you can and you're somebody that's savvy, uh, that has some financial acumen, consult a professional, right? Particularly when it comes to, of course, divorce. But, you know, if you don't, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, I don't have a financial advisor because I don't have millions of dollars. You don't need to have a you know, a million dollars in the bank or $5 million in the bank to work with a good financial advisor. A lot of financial advisors today are fee-based. They're not asset-based and they want to work with you. They want to work with you to, to build and ensure a nest egg and also to be able to provide your, you know, your loved ones with, uh, you know, the next generation of money as well. Jamie, of course, you know, you have the floor on social security, but talk to me about pensions uh, it, it's a it's a really delicate and arduous arduous process. I think I think to divorce divorce and divide pensions. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I can. Uh, you know, you know, one of the uh, I guess the Social Security pieces too that's always good. And I, I love that story when you know anytime you can go back and you'll help somebody find uh, you know really Social Security payments that they're entitled to, right? Survivor benefits and. Uh, you know, sometimes you run into it with kids, too, and people don't think about that, and their kids are eligible for payments when a spouse could die. So there's a lot of benefits out there in Social Security. And, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, the system, uh, you know, does not do the best job ever on uh, educating people on, you know, the claiming strategies and what you're entitled to. Uh, however, the one thing I have heard is very similar, Nancy, like I've been on calls with them when we've grabbed stuff off the website with a client and say, hey, you actually can do it. Here's on your website. And they're like, oh, well, let, let me get right back. And then they come back five minutes later and say, oh, yeah, you can do that. Um, uh, funny enough, I actually, when there was, I'll share a personal story there. When, when some of the file and suspend strategies were around, I actually had my um, father-in-law change his filing and he actually went back and, and redid things and suspended for a while, which was funny. But the first time he went in, they actually told him he couldn't do that. And I had to <laughs> tell him to go back and what to bring with them. Um, it was just it's one of those moments where your father-in-law now is questioning you because you've told him this advice <laughs> and he goes and he's like no they said i couldn't do that i'm like well they're wrong and here's what we'll do <laughs> and uh, it's really too bad how often that that's happening and thank god we're there to help people know what they're really entitled to yeah. yeah and i mean you just think about all the people who you know have probably tried that themselves they read an article they went in they were told no and then they gave up right because they didn't have the confidence to go on the social security website find the rule find the article and bring it in and you know i, I guess the good thing about that as i, I said is that those strategies went away so social security is a little bit simpler in some respects now as a lot of those claiming strategies are are 
for the most part gone at this point. Um, I, I hope that whenever we get to the next version of updates on Social Security, that they modernize some of the application parts and the electronic pieces um, so that these claiming decisions are a little easier for people. It's still pretty limited on what, what you can even do online, right? Not every claiming strategy you can file for online. And that's just, we need to get a little bit further ahead. But I always do just like to, to take the second and like also not dis Social Security because uh, I, I also argue that Social Security is the single most efficient financial instrument ever built. It, it actually runs with a total overhead operating budget of less than 1%, which if you think about that from a company standpoint is really amazing. There is no company that operates with a less than 1% over, overhead. But then the downside is very little training, very little support, no marketing, no R&D, right? There's nothing there except they collect money and they distribute it fairly efficiently. Um, uh, but as you said, the, the next part is pensions. Now, I, I, last time I looked at some of the, the U.S. data, actually, you know, if you look at the 70 and older group, that group still has a lot of pensions, right? The the baby boomer group still has a lot of pensions. It's still part of their retirement. Um, you know, a lot of them are state law driven ones. Some were RISA. You know, ERISA pensions uh, often a little bit easier split up. There are some rules around that state level ones. Uh, again, they're still falling under some federal rules, but sometimes they, they have their own plan specific pieces in different states on what you're entitled to, what the payouts are, what the rates in which you deal with inflation are. And so all of a sudden, the decision whether to pensionize and annuitize that versus a lump sum gets a lot murkier. And so that becomes a really big part of the whole decision. And um, obviously, and, and, and I think, uh, you know, we'll probably get to this also because it's a big part of divorce planning, which is quadro planning, right? That domestic relationship order and how we're going to split up these. And there's actually a lot of interesting planning going on in that space right now. Like, I'm not in it day in and day out, um, but I've, I've been to some, you know, obviously we run into it a lot on the qualified plan side, um, but that there's some exceptions from penalty rules and early distributions. And so there's, there's been this whole world of, you know, attorneys and advisors that have focused on that, especially with the rise of silver gray divorce. And, uh, you know, that is kind of the, the rules and metrics under which we can split up ERISA covered plans and distribute the assets up as part of that divorce kind of proceeding and negotiations. And it, again, can be a negotiation there on how we're going to split things up. But as I did say, you know, depending on the state, uh, th that makes the, the conversations, again, what other assets might we be splitting up? Are we going to annuitize one? Is there a survivor benefit? Do we keep the survivor benefit? And, and that's really hard analysis because some of these things don't exist on the open market. For instance, I, I worked with a pension at the state level, a teacher one at one point, that had an 8% guaranteed cost of living adjustment built into it. Now, when you look at that, that literally does not exist on the open market anymore. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't self-insure against that. Like, I can't replicate that. Now, if that's a really big enough asset and you still want to distribute this and, and we're trying to break it apart, you're losing a lot of value that you can't really back into again. And so that's a really tough you know, decision. Um, interestingly enough, there, there's a lot of data around that pension system. And uh, uh, most participants still take a lump sum out of there, which is, you know, from the academic world really upsets all the academics because, like, you know, nobody can justify that <laughs> from a math standpoint. But the behavior is we want the cash, we want the lump sum, we like control of it. But Financially, it's probably the wrong decision for 99% of the people taking it out. <laughs>
And Nancy, Steven, you, I, I you've got to, to let me talk about pensions. Because yeah, let me tell you, you when you it have comes, the floor. <laughs> yeah, this is so this is my world, right? And I've got to tell you that when it comes to divorce, very few people know what's going on with pensions, and very few people want to know, and everybody needs to know. Um, this is the area of family law responsible for the most malpractice suits against family law attorneys. And so my job as a certified divorce financial analyst is to make sure everybody knows what they're dealing with because they are incredibly complicated. Every pension plan is created different. And you really have to be careful with the state and municipal plans because a lot of these plans are severely underfunded. And they are changing the rules in the background and not really advertising them. For instance, public safety retirement, police officers that are on the pension plan in Arizona. They changed the rule a few years ago that you can no longer have an ex-spouse as a beneficiary. You can no longer select an ex-spouse as a joint annuitant. That was huge. But I still get divorce decrees where an attorney says that pension is going to be divided by quadro 50-50, even though the employee spouse is 64 years old with high blood pressure and has a current, current cancer diagnosis. And nobody's looking at these things. And so it's hugely important. And then there's a difference between a shared benefit versus a separate benefit and knowing which way to, to do the quadro properly so that everybody knows what's actually going to happen. The, the planning there is absolutely critical, critical. And it's the most often neglected area of divorce planning. Then We didn't even talk about military. Oh, my gosh. The military pensions the last couple of years, they've rewritten all their rules now. And you pretty much need a military specialist to do that. And so in my network of financial advisors that I teach and train, we have a military specialist. We have a first specialist. We have a CSRS specialist. And we all kind of lean on each other when we're looking at these pensions to educate the clients. Um, you mentioned, Jamie, about the 8% COLA. Teachers in Arizona that are retiring right now, I actually had a forensic case that I did where I had to look at the last 10 years of payments and darned if their average annual increase wasn't 7.5%. It's discretionary. It can, it's based on the returns of their investments in the pension. But holy cow, right? So that dramatically changed the valuation of that pension, you know, knowing that it was getting that kind of appreciation every year. But when you divide an Arizona state retirement pension, get this, you can divide the payment but have one person keep the entire COLA. Oh, that brings out some really cool negotiating power. So, okay, well, if we let you keep all the COLA, then maybe we can get some extra funds over here from the house. And so, yeah, that's a place where some real wonderfully powerful creativity can be applied. I got to tell you, the two of you are making my job just so easy tonight because all I got to do is ask a question and, and the knowledge is just amazing. So I really appreciate that. Uh, Nancy, when should people come to you? Should they, should they, I think just, it's probably a question I should have asked at the beginning of the show. Can you define CDFA? What makes you different than 
any any other financial advisor that deals in the world of divorce, but in the world of divorce. But then, when should a couple or, or an individual come to you? Should they see their attorney first? Should they come to you first? Uh, just walk the viewers through that, because as, as I hear you talking about this, it seems like they should come to you first, figure the finances out, and then go to the lawyer. But I don't think it's currently being done like that today. Am I wrong? You are absolutely wrong, and it's unfortunate. And that's, frankly, become kind of my mission. And this is why I, I teach and train financial advisors all over the country on how to build these businesses, because people need to know we're here, and they don't. So we're really working on this public education campaign of, listen, when you, and, and this doesn't have to be done as a couple, this can be done as an individual. If you're even thinking you're heading in that direction, go to the Institute for Divorce Financial Analysts and do a zip code search and find a CDFA in your market. Because answering your question about who we are and how we're different. So first of all, you must be an experienced financial advisor to even get the credential in the first, first place. Either an experienced financial advisor, a CPA, or an attorney. So we're already professionals. Then the coursework to get the credential is about 100 hours of specialized training in all things divorce related. And all those little intricacies, Jamie mentioned there's some, some um, terms that you know you can access retirement money early with no penalty. There are things that are on a 529 plan for grandkids and kids that you need to be aware of. And so we get trained in all those little intricacies how to actually value a pension, how to add some creativity. Now, to be honest with you, though, like most credentials, when you sit for the exam and you pass for the exam, you're not really ready to do the work yet. And so that's why I created my training program is I really work with CDFAs to really deepen their training and the level of work that they're able to do for people. Um, and so we really are specialists. And interestingly, too, if your advisor is a CFP, a certified financial professional, their code of ethics will actually prevent them from helping you if you let them know they're going to get a divorce. Because they're a neutral party for you and your, you and your spouse. So they will actually say, ooh, I'm sorry, can't help you here. So we actually partner with a lot of CFPs so that we can help their clients get through it in a better way, save their assets, and, and then hopefully return back to the financial advisor as individual clients. Um, and when I'm talking about saving assets, guys, this is no joke. I have a case I'm working on right now that's going on three and a half years and over a million dollars in litigation costs. It's such a waste. And this they've got young kids. It's like those kids' college accounts are gone. And it doesn't matter what the outcome is. That money doesn't come back ever. So I totally agree with you, Stephen. Be the financial person first. And, and here's the other reason. Look, lawyers get a bad name for a reason. There's a high population of lawyers that frankly don't really care that much about you and your family, but they're very interested in, in how much they can drum up in billable hours. I mean, that's a horrible thing to say, but it's, but it's true. So what we do as CDFAs is we weed through the bad eggs and we call out the attorneys who have your best interest in mind. And I'm not going to blow smoke up your skirt and just tell you what you want to hear. They're actually going to partner with you and partner with us so that you can have your best outcome. But again, I got to say out loud, you don't necessarily need lawyers. If the two of you are rational adults, 
who can be intelligent and sit at a table, you may not even need lawyers. That's a great point. And the, the Stephen J. Sless Group, my firm, we are proud to be new partners of the Institute for Divorce Financial Analysts. Uh, and we're going to be working with CDFAs, Certified Divorce Financial Analysts, in all 50 states to educate them about reverse mortgages. And then we also have a curriculum that we've put together that we're going to be able to offer uh, continuing education credits for CFPs, Certified Financial Planners, through a webinar presentation that we're going to be putting together soon. So if you are a financial advisor, and I know there's a lot of financial advisors that watch this show, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, Stephen J. Sless on LinkedIn, uh, and, and follow me. There's more to come on this partnership uh, with IDFA, and uh, you, can, you too can be able to attend one of our webinars and get free uh, CE credits for CFPs. We got a minute and a half left. Uh, Nancy, tell the folks how they can reach you and uh, your best contact information. Yeah, absolutely. Well, check us out on our website. Actually, we have a refresh website coming out on Friday, smarterdivorcesolutions.com. You can reach us at our 800 number, 877-552-4017, 877-552-4017. Email me, nancy at smarterdivorcesolutions.com. I'm here as a resource, and we'll get you connected with the right people. And Jamie, uh, for advisors that want training in particular, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, so I, I think on those sides, probably the easiest place to start is CarsonGroup.com, and that looks like what we have up there. Uh, we've got a coaching firm for advisors. We coach about 1,400 uh, firms, been around since 1993. And then you know, for individual clients, we have CDFAs, CFPs, uh, attorneys, CPAs, CFAs. So we're, we're about, I think, 130 locations across the country now. And uh, so kind of in your state, in your area, if you need help, we're kind of sim similar thing as I heard from Nancy. Uh, try to build that network of trusted professionals because realistically, not one person can solve all of these uh, pieces. As an attorney myself, uh, I don't do billable hours anymore, but I, I've more learned to go find the people that can help you. <laughs> Fantastic. It's been a pleasure. It's been a it's been a real pleasure having both of you on. Thank you so much. You can visit me at the slessgroup.com. As always, expect more with Sless. Good night.